Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Chad and Heather, for leading us in our music this morning. And then also that uh, wonderful prayer supplication. Thank you, Pastor Tim. You know, I've always wanted to say this, and I think I can this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the maps. There you go. One old fellow said, I believe that all of the Scriptures are inspired from Genesis through the maps. And your Bible may not have a set of maps, and so maybe your neighbor does. Um, but usually in the back of some of the Bibles, you'll have a map of the um, Old Kingdom during the Old Testament time. So you see some of the landmarks in that uh, era. Then then uh, maybe they have a map uh, during the time of Jesus and Jesus' ministry. And then if you're fortunate enough to have a map of Paul's missionary journeys... Um, I just thought it would be helpful for you as we delve into this passage this morning or this, this message this morning that will be taken from Acts chapter 27. For the benefit of our guest, I've been preaching through the book of Acts and we're up to chapter 27 in the fourth and last of the journeys of the Apostle Paul uh, as he's making his way to Rome. And so you'll hear landmarks, you'll hear ports of call and, and uh, places. And I thought, well, it would be good if you could glance down and see these reference points that are made uh, clear to you by the gospel writer Luke, who is recording so carefully and meticulously details in the journey of the Apostle Paul. As you well know, having um, been in, in previous messages in chapter 26 particularly, the Apostle Paul has been under house arrest there in Caesarea, first under uh, Governor Felix, and then later under Governor Festus, and even had the audience of the king of the region, uh, king of Judea, if you will, uh, King Herod Agrippa II, and his accompli- uh, accomplice, uh, Bernice. And so we saw that in chapter 6. So Paul's been in house arrest for two years there uh, his his trial put on hold. Uh, of course, you know that Paul is is uh, he's on the hit list of the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin in Jew- Jerusalem. They want nothing more than to get their hands on the Apostle Paul so they can murder him. That's been made clear. There's a plot to to assassinate him as soon as they can get him uh, out from under the governor's uh, house. Paul realizes that in the last hearing and and exercised his right as a Roman citizen. When he appealed his case to Caesar, which any Roman citizen can do, which means the case has to go to Rome and the emperor himself will listen to this. And so the main thing that I think is important for us to see is the, the providence of God is vividly depicted in Paul's journey to Rome. Just like the providence of God has been depicted in Paul's life from the very moment that Christ intercepted Paul on the road to Damascus. All through the journeys of Paul, all through the experiences of Paul, all through the trials, the hardships, the tribulations. Listen, God has had His hand upon Paul because God saved Paul. He, he called Paul. He has a purpose for the Apostle Paul. But could I bring that a little bit closer to home? Could I challenge you to understand that God also, if you're a Christian, as Brother Richard so aptly pointed out, to be a part of the citizen of God and to be an ambassador for Christ? Do you understand that God is the one who does the saving? That through the blood of Jesus Christ? And so therefore, if you are saved, it's because God has saved you. And you and I belong to Him. And just like He did for Paul, maybe in a different way, thank the Lord, 
He still has a purpose for you and me. And God providentially has been working in your life just as He has worked providentially in the life of Paul. He knows the details of our lives. So this is the, the, the thing that I want us to see that is woven through the book of Acts. Those that God saves, calls, and, and sends, He works providentially in their lives. There's some valuable lessons in this chapter that I want us to extract in the time that we have. There's a lesson of trust, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment in the early verses of chapter 27 as Paul is embarking upon this journey. But then there's also a lesson on um, uh, trust in the Lord. There's a lesson on travel. Uh, you know, we'll talk about some of the details that, that Luke includes in this chapter on sea travel in first century times. And then a lesson on leadership as we watch the Apostle Paul just exercise marvelous traits of a godly leader. And I think as we're embarking upon a new season of elections and thinking about leaders for the future of our nation and our state and what have you, uh, if there was ever a time that Americans need to be conscious of calling forth godly leaders, now is that time. If ever we've needed godly leaders, now is that time. And I'm sure you would uh, agree with that. So, first of all, the lesson of trust as we begin in chapter 7 and verse 1. And I think it's interesting... Notice the first person plural use of the word we in chapter 27 verse 1. And and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy. Let me just stop there for a second because you know that Luke is writing the book of Acts. And he's using the first person plural for the first time in quite a while. Because you see Paul as I indicated has been under house arrest. Where's Luke been? While Paul's been living in the governor's place and in jail and what have you under house arrest, Luke probably has been living somewhere close by in the city of Caesarea. Uh, but, but the focus has been on Paul. Now that Paul is going to be shipped to Rome and, and to have a hearing before Caesar, Luke is going to join him on the journey. So you'll notice now Paul, Luke is writing again in that first person, we. He's actually riding on the ship with Paul all the way to Rome. And what a journey it is. And so, as we look at this, uh, also I want you to see something developing. A matter of trust. As, as, as Luke talks about, and when it was decided we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners. These are probably men that have been condemned to, to death, that probably are going to be ended up in the uh, Colosseums before uh, you know, gladiators or service gladiators will be fed to hungry animals for entertainment. But anyway, they're on their way as prisoners to Rome as well. And so they've entrusted uh, Paul and some prisoners to one Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment, an astute uh, regiment of Roman soldiers there posted in Judea, particularly there in Caesarea. So entering a ship of Adamitium, we put to sea. And this is a local ship, and we'll talk about that. Meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now you may recall from back in uh, chapter 20, when Paul was on his missionary journey up in the upper regions of uh, Asia Minor and into Macedonia, that he was coming back with a delegation of people from Gentiles, Gentile believers from these churches that he had planted in Asia Minor and in Galatia and in Macedonia. And Aristarchus was one of those who accompanied Paul all the way back to Jerusalem. He witnessed Paul being arrested and, 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 and beaten up by the mob and, and arrested by the Romans. And so uh, Aristarchus has been with Paul all this time, as well as Luke. And they're on the ship with Paul as he's making his way 
to Rome. And then in verse 3, if you look there, and, and the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When they put in the port there at Sidon, I thought it was interesting, here the Roman centurion is going to trust Paul to go free, to go find he and Aristarchus and Luke are going to find the Christians who are in that city, find the church that's in that city so that they might be ministered to. This, this exhibits trust. Paul knew about trust. He preached and taught on trust. His trust in God, and we'll talk about that, but Paul certainly knew the wisdom writings of Proverbs and, and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And not and lean not upon your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge God and He will make your path straight. Paul understood what it means to trust God. But I thought it was interesting. Here you see a Roman centurion exhibiting trust towards a prisoner. How could that possibly be? I submit for your consideration that back in chapter 26, you may recall that when... Uh, King Agrippa came before Paul. Paul came before King Agrippa and Bernice. And there was this great royal uh, gathering of, of an august company of, of, of leaders and commanders who accompanied the king. And, and they all got to hear Paul present his testimony and his defense. I believe it's very possible that, that Julius was among that august group gathered there and heard the Apostle Paul. Heard his heart. Heard his, his testimony. Heard his defense. And I believe there in chapter 26 and verse 31, after Paul had shared and, and that group went off to the side, King Agrippa and Festus and, and probably Julius and others, they reasoned among themselves and they said, basically, this man has done nothing worthy of death or chains. In fact, King Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I believe Julius knew Paul was an innocent man. He knew that Paul was a man of integrity. And so even though Paul was probably a very high-profile prisoner, and knowing how volatile Paul's presence would have been in the presence of any Jews who would have been in that city, he still took the chance, allowing Paul to have the liberty to go and find some Christians in the, in the city. I'm sure the word had gotten out that Paul was coming to, to Sidon. And, but, but look what that uh, verse tells us. It's very important. As Paul and, and, and Aristarchus and, and Luke find the Christians... They, they, his friends would receive care. He would receive care from them. And that's important because you see, when you're traveling in first century times, even as a prisoner, you were responsible for your own supplies, your food and things like that. So this was an excellent time for Paul to receive some nourishment and encouragement to be prayed over. And I'm sure he did some preaching with those Christians there in the city. But they also probably stocked Paul and Luke and Aristarchus up with the supplies that they needed. And so we see that Paul's reputation elicits the Roman commander's trust. And also the centurion's trust benefits Paul in his travel. So they both receive out of this. And Paul benefits from this, this trust that the centurion places in him. And so as we look further here, let's, let's read and, and, and see this relationship continue to develop in verse 4. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And this is a time of the year the winds were coming from the north, northwest. And so they were going against the ship, trying to make its way to Italy. 
I've not done any sailing, but I understand it's very important that you have the winds to your favor. And so they have these strong winds working against them. Now, if you're following on your map, you'll be able to see the island of Cyprus and you'll see that they, they sail to the north and the east of the island of Cyprus, which would prevent the north, northwest winds from, from hitting them and, and gave them a little easier travel at that point. In verse 5, and when they, we had sailed over the sea, which is uh, off uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, you'll see that on the map, you can get a, you can kind of judge where they are. We came to Myra, which is a port, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So it's important that you understand the ship that they have been traveling on from Caesarea is a local ship. It's, it's one that, that basically is designed to follow the coastline. They don't like to get out in the open ocean because they're not a big ship. They're not made for open uh, waters, navigation. And so they've been following, going from port to port, just kind of keeping the eye. They, they're staying in, in sight of land, if you will, all the way up as they travel upward from, from the uh, city of Caesarea up along Asia Minor, making their way. Now the transition occurs in verse 5 where they're getting ready to get aboard a larger ship there in verse 6. This is probably one of the major grain ships. Rome imported a tremendous amount of grain from the northern coast of Africa. And these ships ran from Alexandria up to Italy and brought the, supplied the capital city of the empire with lots of grain. This is one of those grain ships making its way to Italy. It's a bigger ship and we'll see that at, at, at some point we'll discover that it's holding over 275 passengers. So, so they board this bigger ship, if you will. But <clears throat> I want you to understand too that as we talk about the trust that, that, that Julius places in the apostle Paul, that if we're going to understand how Paul functions on the journey ahead of him, and it is an adventurous journey, you'll see. It is a, quite a dramatic trip that Paul's about to embark upon with the rest of the crew. How is it that Paul maintains the strength and the, the confidence that he does? It's because of his trust in God. In contrast to, I, th- I think it's interesting, you'll see that, that the centurion's trust is in Paul, but it's not yet complete. How do we know that? Well, let's read a little further and I'll show you. Okay, so now they're on the bigger ship. They're heading towards Italy, hopefully. In verse 7. And when we had sailed slowly, Luke emphasizes slowly, many days, in other words, and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the, the shelter of Crete. Off of Salome. And you'll see on your map there the island of, of, of uh, Crete. And they, they go to the back side of the island so that they have the winds are, are not hitting them as hard there. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. And again, that's on your little map there. You'll see where the little harbor where they kind of pulled in for, for safe passage or at least just to get some rest there near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. And and, and so uh, Paul is speaking pretty much from his own judgment. Uh, You don't want to get a reputation of of knowing being an expert in shipwrecks. But the Apostle Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians, over in chapter 11, verse 25, he said, Hey, I've been shipwrecked not once, not twice, but three times. Paul understood a little bit about sea travel, and he understood about shipwrecks. And so he's offering his opinion at this point. Now, I, that's important. 
Because it's one thing for a Christian to speak from their own experiences and judgment and then to be speaking on behalf of God. You're going to see both instances represented here. Paul is just basically giving his opinion. And he's saying, I just, I, I don't think it's a good thing to, to, to do for us to go forward. We need to hunker down right here in the haven, uh, fair havens and stay here and, and, and wait it out through the winter months. You see, Luke gives us a detail there that's very important to help you appreciate what Paul was saying there. He says, because the fast, in verse 9, the fast was already over, talking about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement normally lands somewhere in September to the first part of October. And, and, and if you are a sailor, if you are a shipmaster, if you're out on the open waters, you know that the most dangerous time to be out in the ocean is in that time period from, say, October through uh, the first part of February. And here they were about to embark upon a long journey up to Italy in the most dangerous time to try to be sailing. They've already experienced the harshness of the winds going against them. And Paul is just saying, look, I just don't think it's a good idea. Now, the centurion trusts Paul. But in matters of, 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 of seafaring, well, he would do what you and I do. He turned to the experts. And so as we, as we look there, in verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. A decision, by the way, that he would regret. In verse 12, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, in other words, wasn't big enough for everybody, the majority advised to set sail there also, to move on, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, not Arizona, but a harbor further up the coast on Crete and, and, and uh, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So they're reasoning to themselves, oh, listen, we can do it. We can make it. All we got to do is just go a few more miles around the curve of, of, of Crete, around the coast of Crete, and we'll, we'll hunker down in Phoenix and we'll wait out the winter. We don't need to listen to this guy here. He's, he's a preacher. And, and so the majority says, let's sail on. Now, I realize in church conferences and other meetings, we always go with the majority rule type of principle. But you know, sometimes, folks, it's not wise to go with the majority. And I think about things that happen in our nation today where it seems like the majority, the whole, the flow is going in one direction, morally or ethically. But let me tell you something. Just because everybody else is doing it, just because everybody else seems to think it's okay, doesn't make it right. This centurion... And the ship's captain and everybody on board would regret this decision. You see, Paul had a life grounded in trusting God. He knew the importance of trusting in the Lord absolutely. How did Paul know? How did Paul have the confidence that he was going to go to Rome? Because in chapter 19, remember when Paul had, had a vision in verse 21. It says he was up in the region of Ephesus. And, and he, he said that after I have been there, I must, I must see, also see Rome. The Spirit had told Paul, look, you're going to go to Rome. We also saw that in chapter 21, 23, rather, in verse 11, Jesus came and stood alongside of Paul and said, Paul, listen, just as you testified so faithfully of me in Jerusalem, I'm going to take you all the way to Rome and you're going to testify of me there. Paul knew he was going to Rome. He trusted in God to do what he said he would do. And Paul's trust in the Lord gave him consistent faith and confidence. Do you live in confidence in God? 
Can you claim what Paul claims in Philippians 1.6 when he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you, He will complete it? The work that God had begun in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, Paul knew good and well that the Lord was able and God would fulfill it to the T. There's no such thing as God not completing the plans that He has for His people. So you wonder, where does the trust that Paul has come from? It comes from his confidence in knowing that God is able to do everything that he says he would do, including taking Paul safely all the way to Rome. You understand that you don't have a relationship with the Lord unless you trust Him. God gives us the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it's up to you and me. Do we trust Him? Do we trust what the Word of God says, that Jesus Christ is who He, the Bible says He is? The Son of God, the Lamb of God, who died and gave His life as a propitiation for our sins and was resurrected the third day, victorious over death and the grave, and that because of our faith in Him, we too will have forgiveness of our sins and have eternal life. Do you trust the Word of God? Do you trust Jesus Christ to do in your life what He said He would do, to save you? Do you trust that He will set you apart to do the work that He's called you to do? And the things that the Lord has set you to do, do you believe that He will complete it? Do you believe He's able to do what He's called you to do? Whether that be a godly parent or a godly husband or wife or a godly employee or to embark upon a ministry or whatever it may be, wherever God points you and calls you, He's able to do that. I remember an old song we used to sing, Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. I'm thankful that Christianity is not a hope so or think so religion. Sometimes when we're out sharing the gospel and you ask a person if they're going to go to heaven, if they're saved, if they're going to go to heaven, you'll hear oftentimes people kind of hem and haw and they'll say, well, I think so. I, I hope so. And deep in my spirit, I cringe. Because Christianity is not a think so or a hope so religion. It's a know so relationship. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you have trusted implicitly in Him as your Savior and Lord and believing that His shed blood on the cross of Calvary paid the price for your sins, then you can look resolutely in the eyes of anybody that asks you that question if you know you're saved, if you know you're going to heaven. You can say, oh yes, I know so. I know I'm going to heaven. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I have a home in heaven that He has prepared for me right now. We need more confident Christians walking in the midst of a world of uncertainty and instability today. As we move along, I want you to see, because some of the historians marvel... And we've already talked about Luke is just... He is just gifted with, with details... And, and this, this rendition of the journey, Paul's journey to, to Rome, has been regarded by historians as probably one of the best uh, 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 writings on, on nautical terms. And, and so uh, we get a real lesson in travel, even as we read this account of Paul's journey by ship to Rome. Sir William Ramsey and Scott J. Smith, both biblical scholars, both remark how historians studying the ancient sea travel in detail have given Luke's rendition 
uh, high marks because of the details, the vivid depiction of ancient travel, sea travel. You see it right there. You want to understand what it meant to go out to sea in, in the first century? Read what Luke has given us. Luke's not by trade a, a, a sailor. He's not a captain. By trade, we know he's a physician. But he is gifted of God. And Luke's account of the sea travel folks is just as inspired as any other part of the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? God wanted us to see the details of Paul's trip. So we see vivid depiction of ancient sea travel recorded as we move further, beginning in verse 13. We see the route that they followed, the landmarks that they passed, the time that lapsed. Luke doesn't miss a detail. The types of ships that they travel on. He gives an accurate description of the nautical terminology that they use. Luke's layman description contains amazing accuracy. So much so that people studying sea travel, even today, go back and read Luke's account. And so we see Luke's dramatic rendition of this adventure on the high seas. Buckle your seatbelts. Hold on for the ride of your life as we pick up in verse 13. When the south winds blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose putting out to sea, because the majority had said, let's move on, let's sail on to the next port, and it'll be all right. So they sailed close to by Crete, so they're staying close to the shore. Verse 14, but not long after, in other words, suddenly, a tempestuous headwind arose called the Euryclidon, which broken down means north and east. In other words, the old nor'easter. And anybody that's been around the coast or here talk to people living on the coast, they talk about those nor'easters. And, and this is exactly from the high uh, mountaintops of, of, the mount, of the island of Crete. These, these winds come rushing down upon the warm waters of the Mediterranean and creating a, a, a tempestuous uh, a storm, something like a, a hurricane that we would see today. And so immediately... This, this wind uh, hits them. This storm hits them. In verse 15, Luke is recording, So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, and if you're sailing, you've got to keep your bow pointed into the, to the wind to navigate, to be able to have direction. And, and the winds are so strong, they can't even turn the ship in the direction of the winds. And, and this, is a, this is a great problem for them at that point. And running under the shelter of the island of Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. In other words, the ship that's pulling, the, the ship typically will pull the lifeboat behind it. But you see, the lifeboat's filling up with water. It's becoming cumbersome. So they, they're trying to get the lifeboat on board of the ship. And even with the winds and the rain, they're having difficulty even uh, securing the lifeboat to that point. Uh, this is not a, a pleasure. This is not a love boat cruise, I assure you. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, a process known, you know, by sailors as frapping. In other words, they take cables and run under the ship and all around the hull of the ship and tighten those cables down because with the kind of beating that the wind is giving against the ship at this point, these boards start coming apart. The ship will literally come apart out in the middle of the ocean. So they're securing the ship's hull, if you will, in this process called frapping and fear unless they should run aground on the uh, Syrtis sands. In other words, they don't know. Listen, they're out there. They don't know where they're headed. And, and, and every sailor's dread, just like back in the uh, 1500s, 1600s, when this country was being explored, sailors dreaded coming near the outer banks of North Carolina. They were considered to be the graveyard of the Atlantic. 
If you were anywhere in the region, chances are your ship was going down on one of those outer banks or some of the, the coral reefs out there and the rocks and crags and whatever. Well, there was just such a place on the northern point of Africa that, the, that sailors dreaded. And they were thinking, oh no, if we go down that way, we're driven in that direction, our ship will be torn apart. Pick up in verse 18, Luke is recording. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day, they lighten the ship so they're throwing over non-essential things because they're getting thrown all around in, in, the, in the ocean. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard. So these are non-essential gear on the ship. And they threw those overboard with our hands. When Luke says with our hands, he's talking literally. He's saying, hey, the sailors are so busy trying to get this ship under control. We're having to do the work of the sailors. So we're even the prisoners are helping to heave stuff over. Everybody is getting desperate at this point because they see the situation getting worse and worse. Just as you think it couldn't get any worse, in verse 20, Luke goes on to say, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for days... And that to a sailor is a horrible, horrific situation. How did they navigate? They didn't have GPS. They didn't have maps. They looked to the sun. They looked to the stars. And if you're going days and the wind is driving you like like a cork floating across the ocean and you don't know where north is, south is, you don't know which way you're going and they're doing this for days, everybody is beginning to be affected by this. Now when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Boy, it makes me think about a couple other at-sea stories. Jonah, you recall the storm that they encountered out there on the sea? It looked like there was no hope for them. You remember the disciples when Jesus sent them ahead on the Sea of Galilee? They got out there in the midst of one of these terrible storms. Maybe not this big. But then again, you know, they, they, they thought, my goodness, we're going down. And you know, it's a, it must be a bad thing to be out in the middle of the ocean, and the only thing that's, keep, that's keeping you alive, and you're floating on it, is, is possibly going to go down. And you're thinking, this is it. There's no, there's no hope to be saved. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's the state of people who are lost in sin. That's the state of people who are living blinded by sin and are out there. And, and many of them come to that point. As, as, as our brother uh, Bennett shared in his testimonies that, that he read, individuals have reached a point in their lives that were so dark and absolutely dismal. They had no direction. They had no purpose. They had no hope. There was no reason that they had anything that would save them from the predicament that they were in. I love that old song that we used to sing a lot. Love lifted me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifted me. Now safe am I. That's why we have to get out there. I believe Luke intended those words just as a symbol to Christians who would read this later to understand. Listen, just as they were feeling desperate out there in the waters of the Mediterranean in the darkness of that storm, there are people who are living on the darkness of sin out there on the sea of life. But after long abstinence from food, and you know why people aren't eating? I don't know if you've ever gotten seasick. But you can imagine riding a boat in a hurricane that's much smaller than our cruise ships today. And, and no sooner does the bow pitch up, you know, maybe a hundred feet up in the air. Then here comes the helm flipping and you go crashing down. And you do that over and over and over. And the wind is blowing and the wind is, and the rain is slashing your face. Hey, anybody want a turkey sandwich? <laughs> 
And so seasickness is setting in and despair is setting in and they haven't eaten and, 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 and then Paul stands up in the midst of them and this is so interesting. He stands up in the midst of this crowd, the centurion, the soldiers, the sailors and all, everybody else. He said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred that, this disaster and loss. You know, don't you just love people that say, I told you so. This is not the time. This is not. But you know, Paul knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. I believe that centurion was thinking all along the way, oh my goodness, if I had it to do over, if I only had it to do over, I would have listened to that, that bald-headed Christian a hundred times over. He, he knew. He knew somehow. He knew. So Paul's now, and, and you'll see the very essence of, of Paul as a man of God in verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart. And they're thinking, yeah, right? <laughs> he says, here we are, hopeless and in despair. And Paul says, listen, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Now, this is contrary, contrasting what he said earlier, just a few verses back. But remember what I told you? Paul was basing his earlier decision on judgment. He says, if we go sailing out there at the worst time of year to go sailing, he says, good chances are ship's going down, cargo's going down, and we'll go down. But now Paul's got a new perspective. He's not speaking from his own impressions. He's not speaking from his, his collective wisdom. He's not speaking a matter of judgment. He's, he explains. Look at verse 23. How could he speak so confidently in details? For there stood by me this night an angel of the God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has, has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, Paul says in verse 25, take heart, men, for I believe God. You see, trust. Remember that thing of trust? Paul says, look, God said it. It's as good as done. You can bank on it, gentlemen. God said not one of you will die. We'll lose the ship. But what's a ship? You know, he said, but you won't. For I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. That's faith, brothers and sisters. And I don't know how you measure up in faith when you're caught in the storms of your life, but I trust that your your absolute faith and confidence is in God. No matter how stormy life may be, no matter how dark circumstances may be, no matter how hopeless your situation may seem, I hope your faith will cause you to say, just like Paul, I know my God is on the throne. I know that He is in control. I know that I'm in His hands. And He's promised me that nobody can snatch me out of His hands. That's what faith gives you in the midst of storms and trials of life is that kind of confidence. Look at verse 26. Paul doesn't hold back. I mean, he tells them the truth. He says in verse 26, However, we must run aground on a certain island. I don't know where, but somewhere. Maybe Gilligan's Island. I'm just throwing that in. Verse 27. And when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, that's out there in the Mediterranean, North of Africa, south of Italy. About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. How do they know? Because they're seasoned sailors. They probably heard the, the roaring of, of, of waves crashing against rocks. They, they, they know. They, they just, their senses are tuned to that. So they're sensing we're getting close to land. In verse 28, they took soundings. In other words, they had a weight on the end of a, a rope and they would let it down into the ocean and they would measure how long it took it to hit the, uh, the, the bottom of the ocean at that point. They took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. In other words, 120 feet. And when they had gone a little farther, they took some soundings again. 
found it to be 15 fathoms, 90 feet. Hmm, 120, 90. We must be going in to shore. So they reasoned to themselves, okay, then fear and lust we should run aground on the rocks. They dropped four anchors from the stern, the back of the ship, and prayed for day to come. I thought it was interesting. The sailors are praying, but they're not praying to our God. They're praying to their pagan gods, you know, to, to bring daylight. Bring daylight. You know, when you're going through a hard time in your life, you're going through a long, dark time in your life. And I don't know if you've had long nights. I have. Where you get burdens on your shoulder, problems, and you're just struggling. It seems like the nights are 24 hours just in and of itself. You just can't wait till the sun comes up. And you always find yourself praying, Oh God, just let the sun come up. If the sun just shines, there's, there's hope again. These, these pagan sailors are praying, We need the sunshine. We need the sunshine. But I'll tell you something. I don't think they believed in their gods. How do we know that? Because the next verse tells us, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they weren't going to wait on their God to rescue them. They were already planning to be rats and abandon the sinking ship. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, in other words, this was a reasonable maneuver. If they were trying to anchor the front of the ship, they would get out, let down anchors, but God had revealed something to Paul. Look at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, uh, unless these men stay in the ship, you, you cannot be saved. Uh, in other words, hey, look over there. See those sailors? They're thinking out on us. They're, they're ratting out on us. They're, they're leaving us. They're abandoning us. If they go, gentlemen, we're going down. So they got the centurion's attention, they got the soldiers' attention, and what did they do? They did something that wasn't really smart, but they did it to stop the sailors from getting away on the lifeboat. In, in verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Now, if you're about ready to go crashing into an island, and some of you people don't know how to swim, you know, it would be a good thing to have a lifeboat with you. Soldiers, you know, they're good and they're strong and they're mighty. And I, I apologize to anybody that here is a veteran and soldier or whatever, okay? But, but you know, they're trained to be stronger. They, they may not be the quickest thinkers. And they, 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 you know, chopped off the lifeboat and there it goes and then they, uh, we might need that. But anyway, that's beside the point. The fact is, Paul kept everybody on the boat. Why was that important? Because God has said, not one person is going to perish, but everybody had to stay on board. And so, in verse 32, and the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. Verse 33, and as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food. Remember, they weren't keen on eating. He was reasoning to them, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Paul uses an old Jewish proverb. You'll find it back in First Samuel about not one hair will be harmed on your head. In fact, Jesus uses it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Talked about in, in verse 18, not a hair of the head will be taken or, or harmed. Paul says, hey, listen, all you got to do is just trust God. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God and, and in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Paul not only says, do this, but Paul says, look, watch me. I know it's hard for you guys to imagine eating with the ship being tossed like it is. But he says, look, look, I'm eating. It's staying down. If you want to be able to pull off this maneuver, especially those of you who are soldiers and sailors, you've got to get some strength. You're weak as, 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 as branch water, as old expression would use. He says, you're going to need some strength. And so he encouraged them to eat and he set the example. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged. 
and also took food themselves. And in all, we had 276 persons on the ship. Like I said, it's not a small little ship. This is a pretty big ship that hauled grain and had enough room for 276 people. Verse 38, so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Don't need wheat when your boat's going to get torn all to pieces. So they're preparing to run aground. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a, a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. They, and, and just look at the terminology. Look at the, the, the nautical uh, uh, knowledge that, that, that Luke just seems to exhibit. Verse 40, And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. In other words, let the ship free to move towards the island. Meanwhile, loosened the rudder ropes. In other words, they had to guide it. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind. They needed to be propelled forward, so they needed the wind behind the sail. And made for shore. In other words, they're getting this baby jacked up and running. In other words, they, they want to hit the shore. They want to make sure they get as far up on the shore as they can. So they got a good plan. Everything is in place. And the ship has got wind behind its sails. But look at verse 41. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, but not on the island. The prow, which is the front of the ship, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken by the violence of the waves. In other words, just as they were approaching the shore of the island, they ran upon the probably like a coral reef, a, a, a pylon of rocks. And, and the front of the ship gets wedged in between those rocks. It's not going to move. It's not going to budge. But at the same time, you got a storm. you got these waves crashing in. And it's beginning to just tear the ship all apart. And they're just feet away from, from the island itself. I have to stop and get a breath. This is exciting. We're almost finished. Now, the soldiers. Now, the sailors have had their bad moment. They, they tried to abandon the ship. So the soldiers are going to take matters into their own hands. They said, look, ship's getting torn apart. We have, we have prisoners on this ship entrusted into our care. And according to Roman law, if a soldier allows a prisoner to escape under their watch, they could pay with their own lives. So, so they're not just thinking randomly here. They're thinking about their lives. And so the soldier says, we need to kill these prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. That's, that's reasonable. But look how God works providentially. Verse 43. But the centurion wanted to save Paul. My goodness. Can you imagine so many lives resting on one person? So many lives resting on one person. And yet that's the way God works. I think about our soul missionaries that sometimes go into a country or into a city in a foreign country by themselves. Maybe a husband and a wife. Not as another soul that speaks their language. Not anybody that's familiar, that knows the culture they came from. And yet they go in there. You're talking about feeling alone. But I want you to understand the providence of God. God understands how He works. Sometimes that's all it takes. Whole cities have been won by one person. Do you remember? A man by the name of Jonah. Do you remember a massive city by the name of Nineveh? Listen, sometimes that's all it takes is one person. Sometimes you may feel like you're the only one in your neighborhood that loves the Lord, that understands the Word of God. And you feel, well, what impact can I possibly make on so many lost people or at my job or in my school? Ladies and gentlemen, you don't need to understand yourself as much as you need to understand God. So many lives rested on Paul. But this man, Paul, knew his God. 
And God knew His man. And that's what makes the difference. Okay, we're about ready to go ashore, so lift up your feet. But the centurion wanted to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, this is verse 43, and commanded that those who would swim, who could swim, should swim abo- uh, jump overboard first and get to the land. And the rest somehow, are on, are, but the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it was, and this is important, last sentence, most important. Remember what Paul said. God told me we're going to crash. God told me that we would run aground. But God said, not one person, not one person will die. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. As I close, there's a quick lesson, and I'm just going to walk you through it very quickly. Because not only do we see a lesson in trust, a lesson in travel, but very quickly, if you think about Paul, you think about the way God used him, and the way that he handled himself in this awful crisis at sea, you see a godly leader. Folks, I, 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 I can't even begin to adequately share how deeply my heart yearns to see in, in the United States of America godly leadership. We are dying as a nation because of the anemic, immoral, compromised leadership that we have suffered for generations. Oh, listen, if you've ever prayed that God would put godly leaders in important places, now's the time. Now's the time. We need a godly president who's not ashamed to stand on his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's not ashamed, as we were studying, our our home group was studying about Jehoshaphat, to call the nation together to pray. Oh, we need leaders who know God and who are known by God. Dr. John MacArthur in his, testament, uh, in his New Testament commentary on the book of Acts shared these qualities, these attributes of godly leaders, and this is Paul, all rolled up. Number one, a, he's a leader. A godly leader is a leader who is trusted. A godly leader takes initiative, doesn't sit back to wait. He's not reactive, but he's proactive. A godly leader uses good judgment, as Paul did when he tried to advise him at the, at the one port not to sail on. A godly leader speaks with authority. He's not just speaking his own subjective opinion, but he's not afraid to stand on authority, especially the authority of the Word of God. A godly leader strengthens others. Look how much Paul invested himself into it, strengthening the, the crew, you know, physically by eating, and strengthening them emotionally by encouraging them. Listen, a godly leader is one who strengthens those around him. A godly leader never compromises his absolutes. <laughs> Paul never went, never, not one time, altered what God's instructions were for him on that ship. A godly leader leads by example. He's not one to say, do as I say, but he's one to say, do as you see me doing. I just want to include those because this is the kind of leader Paul was. That's why he's one of the most dynamic personalities in the New Testament. 
That's why He had such a great impact upon the, the, the world of His day and upon the church. For all of us, whether leaders or not, we can take away from this message the wonderful, wonderful assurance that because we belong to God, we're His servants, we can live with confidence as Paul demonstrated that God is not only with us in the physical and the emotional and spiritual and financial storms of our life, but He's more than able to keep us no matter what we face. Our God is able to keep us and to sustain us. He'll see us all the way through. We're sailing along in the sea of life, brothers and sisters. And there's a port that I look forward to. If my soul gets homesick for, it's called heaven. And if you, like I am, just realizing how great it's going to be in the presence of the Lord, inspires you and encourages you. But sometimes as we go along in this life journey, being bombarded with so many storms of temptations and hardships and crises and tragedies, sometimes it gets hard. Sometimes you lose sight. And I'm, the emotion you hear in my voice is, 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 is joy. Because I have so much joy when I think about what a great and wonderful God we serve. We don't have to hope we're going to get to heaven, brothers and sisters. We don't have to think that we're going to get there. We can know we're going to get there. Because God has given us that assurance. I think about the Apostle Paul as I close with this passage out of Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 35. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Be appalled to somebody. When you see them struggling through the storms of their life, you encourage them. You show the confidence that is yours through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if ever the church needed that, it's this time in the storms that we face and have the confidence and trust in God. Praise God. God is on the throne. Amen? God is in control. Praise His holy name.